excuse me. What's going on, guys? Uh, welcome back to Martial Media Montage, episode 99, where I'm going to be talking Nightmare Beach, Near Dark, Black Roses, three horror films from the uh, 80s classic. Love it. So much fun. First two I like better than Black Roses. Black Roses is fun, but it's not as good as the other two, in my opinion. Uh, Kite 1 and 2 in OVA, one from the 80s, the other one from 2008, and Ninja Scroll from 1993. Really, both, both really good uh, anime OVAs. And I'm going to be closing out this episode with uh, the classic punk rock ska skate band Goldfinger. Uh, I remember hearing, obviously, on Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, Goldfinger, and then obviously uh, it was on Not Another Team Movie, the uh, football sequence. They play 99 Luff Balloons, and it is episode 99. So that being said, I was like, 99, what can I think? I was like, can I look up albums 99? I was like, that could be a whole fucking couple episodes in its own right. And I was like, nope, I'm going to be talking Goldfinger. So three horror films, two OVAs, and one band. Let's get right to it, everybody. Episode 99. Let's go. What's going on, guys? I'm going to be talking about these uh, horror films that I recently watched, and uh, they were at least two of the three I enjoyed. Uh, the last one, it was okay. The first two, I think, were better. Uh, but that being said, I'm going to be talking Nightmare Beach. Came out in 1989, rated R, hour 30 minutes. has a 5.3 out of a 2800 on IMDb. I'd at least probably give it... I'd say at least like a six. The story was captivating enough. Obviously, the acting was not necessarily the best. It was borderline atrocious, but I still had a good time nonetheless. It was a a fun kind of a twist on, I guess, a horror, if you will. It was directed by... Um, excuse me, I'm hiccuping because I have water. Sure, why not? Whatever. Um, <laughs> directed by Umberto Lenzi. Uh, kind of the unsung, I guess, uh, director, if you will, in terms of uh, giallo and Italian horror and so forth. Um see what else he did here that you guys would know ghost house three or excuse me ghost house which is also known as la casa three in regards to the uh the house uh saga i mean it just has the same name it's not necessarily canon whatsoever he also did cannibal ferox uh early 80s when uh, there was the cannibal craze like cannibal holocaust and uh so forth and all that um yeah he's he's well known within the uh, giallo era of uh, horror films you know rest in peace he passed 2017 six years ago all right that being said, uh, Nightmare Beach is about after the execution of a motorcycle gang leader convicted of murder, a helmeted biker goes on a killing spree during spring break in Florida. I'm not going to give away any spoilers here, but it, it was one of those ones that I watched that I was like, I have a feeling it's this guy. And I was like, yep, it's this guy. Um, anybody? Oh, John Saxon's in it. That's right. He uh, is a cop. I mean, what else is new? He's usually a cop. I mean, other than being in um, uh, what the Bruce Lee End of the Dragon. I mean, he was in that. Uh, he was obviously a cop in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, was it uh, Heather Langenkamp's dad uh, as uh, Nancy, I believe? Yeah. Um, really nobody else worth mentioning in my book as far as notable actors or actresses and so forth. But uh, it was fun, man. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, Storyline here. In Miami, the leader of the Demons motorcycle gang, Diablo, being the leader who's the one who gets executed by the electric chair in the beginning. Uh, he says that he is innocent, was framed by Chief of Police Stryker, a.k.a. John Saxon, in the murder of a young woman, promises to return from the dead, uh, from beyond, obviously, to seek revenge. Is it him? Is it not? I'm not going to give anything away. In the Easter holiday, the city is crowded by young people when a biker gang gives a ride to a young woman and electrocutes her on the road. So this, the biker has this, like, I don't know, this, like, contraption set up on his motorcycle that if, like, people come close to it, they get electrocuted. And it's, like, really corny, like, bad practical effects. But it, it's still a lot of fun. I mean, you can tell it's a dummy or it's a prosthetic or whatever. Excuse me. Let me get a sip of water. 
Uh, anyway, that being said, meanwhile, the body of Diablo is missing. It's led to believe that the, uh, um, excuse me, uh, the biker gang uh, dug him up and they're keeping him, essentially. Uh, in his grave, and Mayor Loomis, in reference to uh, Donald Pleasance's character as uh, Dr. Loomis in Halloween, of course, uh, they believe that his gang is stolen from the coffin. When the corpse of the young woman is found, um, they decide to cover up the information to the press. The football players and the friends Skip and Ronnie come to the city to forget their defeat in their last game, and they have a good time. They meet the bartender, Gale, and soon Ronnie gets in trouble with the demon's gang. They beat him up, and immediately after, he is burned by the mysterious um, biker guy. And essentially, uh, Skip just decides to essentially investigate what's going on, and you know, near the end, they obviously figure it out. Uh, the tagline here is the beach of terror and i feel like that works that's all you need just something plain and simple like that not like you know because this came out three years prior to uh freddy so it's not like you can be like you thought you were safe in your dreams i mean you know obviously it has nothing to do with dreams nightmare just happens to be in the same title um trivially umberto lindsay originally hired to direct and had a falling out with the producer just as production started to and wanted to be taken off the film he stated in a 96 interview that he found the story too similar to his earlier film seven blood-stained orchids in 1972 uh decided before shooting that began that the name would not appear on the film screenwriter harry kirkpatrick known as james justice was given the job of directing and received sole directorial credit though he convinced Lindsay to remain on the set as an uncredited uh, adver advisory capacity throughout the entire production. For years, many horror fans thought Harry Kirkpatrick was an alias for Lindsay. It was not. Lindsay stated in interviews that there was really a Harry Kirkpatrick who wrote and co-directed the film. He explained, my contribution consisted solely of providing technical assistance while filming. It should be considered the work of Harry Kirkpatrick solely. Interesting. Uh, the jackets worn by the Demons biker gang sports the logo of the 1985 Italian horror film Demons, a.k.a. Demoni, uh, done by, uh, uh, was it, Bava and uh, Argento's work. That The Demons 1 and 2 is fantastic. Those are awesome. And it shows. It, it You can totally tell on the back of their leather uh, vests that they have that Demons logo. And even, the, I believe it's like the D and then the S, if I'm not mistaken, kind of resemble uh, the uh, fangs, how it looks like on the Pantera logo for the P and the A. Pretty cool. Uh, John Saxon made a very similar movie called Blood Beach in 1980. I've yet to watch that one. I actually went into this film thinking it was that film, but I was like, oh, no, I'm watching something else, and I enjoyed this one regardless. Uh, substituting a sand creature beach killer for a motorcycle killer, as in Nightmare Beach. See, exactly. That's what I thought I was watching. I was I was like, oh, cool, I'm going to be basically watching the beach version of Tremors. I, I can enjoy that. But I had fun with this one as well. The motorcycle helmet worn by the killer is made by Arai Helmets. The helmet colors and design is a replica of the American motorcycle star Randy Mamola. Interesting enough, I guess. I didn't know that. During a scene in the hospital, the Tanoi voice uh, calls repeatedly for Dr. Blair and Dr. J. Hamilton. The exact same snippet can be heard at the beginning of Eyes of a Stranger, a song written by the U.S. metal band Queensryche for their 1988 album Operation Mind Crime. I never really gave uh, Queensryche a, uh, really a thorough uh, listen to, but... That being said, I mean, that's interesting enough for me. I'm down to roll with it. Let's roll with this. <clears throat> what else we got here? Okay. Released August 18th, 1990 in South Korea. So uh, happy, uh, what, 33rd birthday there. I, I didn't know that. Country of origin, uh, obviously Italy, but filmed in uh, North Miami Beach, Florida. Also known as Pesadilla en la Playa. So Nightmare on the Beach in uh, Spanish. Or it could be Italian as well, because Italian is a Latin derivative, and they do sound relatively similar. Uh, produced by El Pico S.A., Laguna Films Overseas Group. Let's see if there's a budget here. Ooh, IMDb does not have a budget. Let's see if Wikipedia comes in uh, clutch here. All right. 
also released as Welcome to Spring Break. It is a 1989 slasher done by Umberto Lenzi, is what they're saying here, and Harry Kirkpatrick, but what is highlighted is Umberto Lenzi. Interesting. So they didn't see eye to eye there in regards to uh, symmetry, uh, IMDb and Wiki. Um, so we got here, directorial credit. Umberto Lenzi originally hired. Okay, we obviously already know that. Basically the same information that I iterated to you guys already. Welcome to Spring Bake would have been considered the work of Harry Kirkpatrick was uh, the another um, alternative title. The Italian film historian Roberto Curdi stated that Lindsay directed the film but refused to sign it, allowing credit to be assigned to Harry Kirkpatrick instead. So, well, you guys need to uh, fix that symmetry there then. <laughs> Critical reception. All movie gave the horror film a positive review, stating that the film was recommended for cheeseball-loving genre enthusiasts everywhere. And rightly so. It's, it's exactly that in a nutshell. Brett Gallman from O'Horror wrote in his review, Welcome to Spring Break is just an unabashed conflation of boobs and blood. Agreed. Yeah, it's gratuitous nudity, spring break bullshit, and it's in your face, and it's supposed to be, clearly. It's a sex comedy movie that treats its characters like blow-up dolls to be punctured by a madman. Yeah, that's that's it, yeah. If the burning, which it says here, the burning was also a fantastic uh, slasher. If the burning of a perfect blend of camp comedies and slashers came together, then this is it. It's a trashier, beachy counterpart version of that. Interesting. And that's, yeah, that's basically it right there in a nutshell. Sam Bowron of Digital Retribution awarded the film a score out of three out of five. Every facet of Welcome to Spring Break, a.k.a. Nightmare Beach, <clears throat> screams of a film that was a prime product of its time, even though its creators traveled halfway across the globe to make it happen. Simply put, if you're a fan of 80 cheese, sleaze, and gore, you'll revel in this movie's surplus exploits and have a giddy good time in the process. Otherwise, maybe wait until after graduation before having that celebratory case of Heineken. I get the joke there. They're referring to, obviously, uh, college uh, pre, pre-grads or undergrads, excuse me. So that's it on Nightmare Beach. Uh, I, I would recommend it. I mean, I had a fun, fun good time with it. Uh, that being said, a classic uh, this one here. To me, it was like the dark, grittier version of Lost Boys in a way. Like a slightly different kind of version of Lost Boys. You know, and I guess I'm a little more partial to that, personally. There's just, I don't know, something to be said about that film. I had a lot of fun with uh, Lost Boys. I still do. There's still parts that are really corny, you know, that don't necessarily hold up as well. But this was still fun regardless. I had to watch it for Bill Paxton and Lance Henriksen. That being said, I'm talking about Near Dark, 1987, rated R, hour and 34 minutes. It's very well paced. It flies right by. The tagline on the cover is, they can only kill you. Uh, fuck, it's hard to read. They can only kill you. That's hard to read, but they can. They can only kill you dead. Is that what it says? But they can terrify you forever. Sure, that's not the greatest tagline. I'll, I'll read down further and see what it happens to say. That's just the cover art on uh, IMDb. It has a 6.9 out of 43,000, and I can see why it has that quality rating, because I mean, it's probably one of those staples, like how like Fright Night was, and obviously Lost Boys, and it's just one of those perfect uh, vampire films of that era. It's very, very 80s, and it, you can feel it, and it works. Uh, it's about a small-town farmer's son who reluctantly joins a traveling group of vampires after he is bitten by a beautiful drifter. Directed by Catherine Bigelow. I'm familiar with that name. It's definitely something that I feel like I've heard of before, but I'm going to take a look at her work here and see what else. Okay, so she did The Hurt Locker, the uh, war film, Zero Dark Thirty, another war film, and then obviously uh, this in uh, 87. Okay, all right, so I definitely know her work. I just didn't, I, I didn't put the face to the name, and now I know. So, okay. Definitely have seen those other pictures, and those were a lot of fun too, those war films. I, I got to be in the right mood to watch a war film personally. 
Uh, Jenny Wright plays May, the girl who uh, ends up biting um, Adrian Pazdar, his name, who plays Caleb. Uh, Bill Paxton is in this, does a phenomenal job. He's a fucking nutcase, a crazy, like, biker punker. Kind of if, like, he lived in Terminator 1 and just went batshit crazy. It's awesome. Lance Henriksen is in this. I mean, he's always great, too. Plays Jesse Hooker. Uh, Jeanette Goldstein plays Diamondback, who's essentially um, Lance Henriksen's... I guess muse, if you will, in regards to uh, vampires. Uh, you'll know Janet, or excuse me, Jeanette Goldstein from um, Terminator Two: Judgment Day uh, when Arnold makes the phone call to um, the foster parents, and obviously uh, the T one thousand picks up, and she's like, "You know, where are you?" And he's like, "How's Woofy? Oh, Woofy's doing fine." You know, like, and it's just that little short conversation. The uh, curly-haired woman is Jeanette Goldstein. She's in this. I was like, "That's where I know her from." Okay. Uh, Tim Thomerson is in this. Plays uh, Lloyd Colton. He uh, doesn't last very long. Uh, Troy Evans, who's a, another uh, officer in uh, Terminator, is also in this. Uh, Thomas Wagner, very famous guy. Who else is in this? Uh, Robert Winley, who was also one of the patrons in the bar of uh, Terminator 2. When he's like, I need your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. You know, right in the beginning, relatively, when Arnold lands uh, on Earth. and Well, he's obviously part of Earth. But that era of Earth, if you will, you guys get it. Um, yeah, so there was definitely a Terminator cast here, which is really, really cool that she uh, managed to get all that. Um, similar to this is what uh, IMDb is stating is uh, they're obviously mentioning Fright Night, Prince of Darkness, and The Howling. And I would categorize, though, as far as, like, yeah, I'd say probably, like, A-tier uh, staple horror if you are interested in getting into, like, schlocky, cheesy type stuff, which I enjoy. But this is clearly, definitely, I would say... Uh, a to borderline even like S tier, especially the ones that I mentioned as well as what I'm mentioning right now. Storyline here uh, has a little bit more. A Midwestern farm boy reluctantly becomes a member of the undead when a girl he meets turns out to be part of a band of southern vampires who roam the highways in stolen cars. Part of his initiation includes a bloody assault in a hick bar. And that was a pretty interesting uh, sequence in the bar too. Uh, the tagline is pray for daylight. And to me, that works a lot better than uh, the tagline that I could barely even fucking read on the movie poster. But trivially, let's see what we got going on here. Future husband James Cameron suggested to Bigelow, uh, Catherine Bigelow, I had no idea they were married because I know he also married uh, Linda Hamilton um, from Terminator. Uh, she used the ready-made ensemble cast from his recent hit, Aliens, hence Bill Paxton, and Lance Henriksen, as well as Jeanette Goldstein, all appear in Bigelow's films, hence Terminator as well. That makes perfect sense. The whole James Cameron thing comes full circle. Michael Bean had also appeared in Aliens, hence Terminator again. He played Reese in the first one, but declined to participate in this film. Uh, next, according to Bill Paxton, the driver that gives him the finger when he's hitchhiking is played by none other than James Cameron. That makes all the fucking sense here, who had visited the set that day to see his wife. Wow. According to Lance Henriksen, he prepared for his role of Jesse by coming up with a background for his character and acting it out. The origin story he came up with was that Jesse was in the Confederate Navy, and there is a little sequence where he talks about, because um, the uh, little farm boy, well, he's not little, but the younger farm, uh, he's not even a boy, he's like probably 18, 21 years old. So the young adult, the farm kid, we'll just say that, um, asks him, uh, how old are you, Jesse, uh, Lance Henriksen's character, and he was like, I was alive you know, during uh, the Confederate and the Union, he was like, what? And he was like, I was part of the Confederacy and we lost, you know, and everybody laughs. So clearly, yes, the Confederate Navy makes sense now. Okay. Henriksen painted his hair black with tar since that was an actual thing Seaman did in the 1800s. So a method actor, that's cool. I don't, I didn't know that he did that. He then added broken fake nails to make his fingers look like the extensions of his finger bones 
and went to town at night like that while in character. He managed to scare a waitress in a Denny's and a hitchhiker twice his size he picked up on the road one night. The hitchhiker quickly asked to leave the car as soon as they drove to the first in inhabited area. So that Lance, uh, without revealing that he was just an actor messing with the guy, gave the man all $80 he had on him for being a good sport. Hendrickson always jokingly added that he was lucky since the hitchhiker could have easily overpowered him in a fight and made him cry like a baby. That's interesting that he did that. That's cool. Unusual for a vampire film, the word vampire is never mentioned, and that's very true. You're obviously led to believe that, you know, since they're overpowered, they can get stabbed and shot, and clearly they're drinking blood any which way that they can, but it's implied, it's just never said. That's interesting. Uh, during the filming, the cast and crew had to deal with a train that would stop at the same intersection every night. One night, Bill Paxton, full makeup with half of his face missing, saw one of the train workers leave the diesel engine and went up to him saying, Hey, man, there's been an accident. If you think I'm bad, wait till you see the other guy. That's cool, man. Like, they're just having fun, man. That, that's so cool that they went through all that. It's really cool to read because I, this is, like I said, one of those staples, and I'm glad that I finally sat down and watched it, and I was like, man, I'm missing out. Uh, released January 8th, 1988 in the UK. Uh, official science to do canal, uh, also known as Near Dark, Die Nacht hat ihren Preis. That's uh, German for obviously, yeah, Near Dark. Okay. Filmed in Pacific Boulevard, uh, Huntington Park, California, USA. Um, production by FM and Near Dark Joint Venture. Interesting. There was. I'm reading the budget now, which is interesting that I didn't find a budget on uh, Nightmare Beach. That's crazy. Uh, the budget was $5 million and it only grossed $3 million. So it was kind of under the radar, I guess, in terms of uh, vampire films. I, personally, like I said, I'm more a Lost Boys enthusiast. And I also feel that... Um, what was I going to say? That uh, Fright Night is probably also a better film, in my opinion. But uh, this this was still a lot of fun. And I'm, I'm glad that I watched it regardless. All right, let's see what uh, Wikipedia has to say here. It is a 1987 American neo-Western horror film, co-written and directed by Kathleen Bigelow in her solo directorial debut at the time, and starring Adrian Pazdar, Jenny Wright, Bill Paxton, Lance Henriksen, Jeanette Goldstein. Despite performing poorly at the box office, critic reviews were generally positive, as they should be. Over the years, the film has gained a cult following, and I can see why. <clears throat> uh, production. Vampire films had become trendy at that time. By the time Near Dark's production, the success of Fright Night, 85, a couple years prior, and The Lost Boys, 87, same year, the latter released two months before Near Dark. So I get it. That makes perfect sense that people were probably just tired of seeing different iterations and versions of Vampire. They wanted something new, so that's probably why it bombed. I get that. Uh, those two grossed $32 million. Catherine Bigelow, the director, wanted to film a Western movie that departed from cinematic convention. She and co-writer Eric Red found financial backing for Western uh, difficult to obtain. It was suggested that they try mixing a Western with another, more popular genre, which at that time was vampires. I get that. Her interest in a revisionist interpretation of cinematic tradition led her and Red, the writer, to combine two genres that they regarded as a ripe uh, for reinterpretation, the Western film and a vampire. So they... Okay, yeah. I, I never really looked at it as a Western. I was just like, oh, it's just a different version of a vampire film but i can see that now considering it looked like i don't know you know kansas or oklahoma or something the combination of the genres had been visited at least twice before on the big screen there was the curse of the undead in 1959 as well as billy the kid versus dracula 66 those are probably really corny but i'm interested 
Uh, Bigelow knew and later mentioned director James Cameron, who directed Aliens in 86, a film that shares the cast members, obviously Janet Goldstein, Bill Paxton, as well as Lance Henriksen, with this film, Near Dark. Actor Michael Bean was offered the role of Jesse Hooker, but he rejected the role. He found the script confusing. Lance Henriksen, uh, Henriksen excuse me, took over the role instead. A cinema scene in the background early in the film has aliens on its marquee, and Cameron played the man who flips off uh, Severin. I already mentioned that, but that was still interesting and pretty cool to read nonetheless. New Dark released October 2nd, 1987 in 262 theaters, grossing 635000 below a $5 million budget. Yeah, that's... Critical response, Rotten uh, Tomatoes review aggregator has an 82% approval rating based on 74 critics. Thank you. Uh, rating of 7.3, the consensus reading. Near Dark is at once a creepy vampire film, a thrilling western, and a poignant family tale with humor and scares in its abundance throughout. Yeah, yeah, I, I can get on board with that. Uh, New York Times writes, Mr. Or, excuse me, Miss Bigelow, two uh, studied compositions. <clears throat> Caleb in a silhouette riding a horse toward the camera clash with her unstudied approach to her character's looks. This is her directorial debut, and I think she did a good job with what she had, so fucking shut up. <laughs> uh, Washington Post said the intermixing of vampire legends, westerns, and biker movies has a result that is both outrageous and poetic in its own right. It's extravagant, bloody thrills, plus something else. Something that comes close to a genuine emotion that is felt. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Time magazine called Near Dark weird and beautiful, all the time teenage vampire love story nonetheless. Richard Schickel of Time also considered the film a clever variant of the vampire film genre, and I agree that the fact that they were able to blend multiple genres and do what they were able to achieve. Uh, calling it a 1980s horror landmark, one of the best vampire movies ever made. I don't know about that. It's good. I don't know about the best one ever made, though. I mean, Bill Paxton steals the show, does a fantastic job in this film. Uh, it's visually stunning and it's a frightening package spinning generally scary tale highlighted the standout degenerate performances of Henry degenerate performances Henriksen did a decent job I like him in other films in my opinion but I thought Bill Paxton was phenomenal so yeah you guys can also fuck off uh, Radio Times yeah no thanks uh, cancelled remake a remake of the film was announced in 2006 as of October wow a co-production between film companies Rogue and Platinum with Samuel Bayer attached to direct. In December 2008, Platinum Dunes producer Bradley Fuller said the project had been put on hold due to similarities in conception with Twilight at the time that came out, a film which has uh, contained a romance between human and vampire characters. So they probably didn't want to be like, oh, we're going to be on the vampire tale once again by the time that we're done you know, filming this, producing it, editing it, uh, casting, so forth. Okay, I get it. It was probably just bad timing. I mean, they could probably do it now, but... I don't think it would have the same cult following and maybe success as it did. I guess maybe the older generation might be interested, but it just won't probably hold up as well as maybe the old one. Uh, that being said, the last film that I watched as far as horror recently, I've been kind of on like eh, somewhat of a horror kick again. I, I took a little bit of a break. Um, I watched uh, Black Roses. Uh, it is a uh, about demons hypnotizing the general public by posing as a rock and roll band. It's, you know, that craze during the 80s of the heavy metal and demons and so forth and witchcraft and whatever and all that crap it's just it's quirky just goofy fun definitely don't take this one seriously it's it's pretty corny uh came out in 1988 rated r hour and a half once again has a 5.2 out of 2500 and i'd probably give it that as well it is what it is uh it's nothing to brag about uh, i think trick or treat is probably better than this i still have yet to uh watch that one i definitely will since i watched this and uh, what's the other one that's like 
Rock and Roll Nightmare is another one that I also have. Uh, anyway, directed by John Fasano. We'll see what else this guy did. Uh, he did Darkness Falls. I definitely remember that. Uh, he produced Tombstone. Okay, interesting. Universal Soldier The Return. He was the writer of the 1999 uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme film. So, okay. I'm definitely well-known in the era of films, but I, I, I couldn't have told you who it was. Yeah, now I know. Okay. Uh, he passed in uh, 2014, so rest in peace, borderline uh, 10 years ago. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, continuing on with IMDb, let's see what else we got going on here. I am curious. Uh, starring anybody that I recognize that's worth mentioning, being like, hey, they're in the... Oh, that's right, Vincent Pastore, he plays uh, Tony's dad. Vincent Pastore, he's in a lot of like mafia-related uh, films, as well as probably like Sopranos or something. He, mentioning the name you're probably like who the hell and then if you google it you're gonna be like i know vincent pastore yeah or pastor excuse me however you want to pronounce it he's he's been in a lot it's saying similar films here frankenhooker uh sure in terms of as far as batshit fucking nutty crazy i'd put frankenhooker in the same vein as like reanimator i had fun with that they're uh, talking about uncle sam i definitely have seen that in passing before i remember going to the uh, video store as a kid and seeing that i just never rented it same with head of the family which i believe is a, a full moon direct picture same guys who did uh puppet master so all right those are on my radar but i've definitely seen frank and hooker that is uh god i know the guy's name he also did um brain damage as well as a basket case uh frank frank henenlotter that's his name i didn't look it up i remembered hey the old brain's working all right Storyline here. Uh, demons hypnotize general public by posing as a rock and roll band, so nothing else to add. Tagline. Turn up the volume, turn down the lights, and, but don't watch it alone. Hey. It gets a pass, I guess. It's That's not the greatest tagline, but they probably could have just done turn up the volume, turn down the lights, and rock out. They could have said something like that. Don't watch it alone. It's not scary at all. It, it's really corny practical effects. Uh, actor Frank Dietz, who played a teenager in the film, was 28 at the time when the film was released. Wow. The VHS home video cassette box had it raised plastic 3D texture lenticular front cover, released in November of 88. That's cool. It's probably one of those things that's expensive now. Actor uh, Carmine Apis, uh, Apis, sure. Character's name is Vinny Apache, very close to his name, or excuse me, in name to his brother Vinny Apache. Uh, oh, it's probably Apache. So, okay, I, I get the... Uh, synonym there as far as sounding similar yeah the opening rock concert scene was filmed after the principal shooting had wrapped on the film okay film debut of vincent pastor so interesting i don't think i knew that either so he kind of got a late start but all right whatever i mean it works for him he clearly was a uh, typecasted as who he is and he's been in stuff since as far as i know okay let's take a look here <coughs> released january 3rd 1989 also known as freak show uh, I don't understand that. I don't feel like that's very appealing. Sure, whatever. Uh, filmed in Ontario, Canada. Cheaper at the time, I'm sure. Uh, production company, Shapiro Glickenhaus Entertainment. And its budget was only 450 k That's... It's like next to nothing for a horror film. Damn, that's nuts. All right. Let's see what Wiki has to uh, say here. I am curious. Black Roses is a 1988 horror film directed by John Fasano, starring, as I've mentioned, most of the music for the band's Black Roses was performed by the members of King Cobra, with Mark Free on vocals and Carmine Apici on drums. <laughs> so he not only acted, he clearly could musically play, too. He was talented. The uh, poster art for it looks incredible, really cool. Like a band uh, form... Uh, excuse me, I'm hiccuping. Uh, forming, like, a yellow face with eyes and then, like, a... Uh, 
kind of like a grim demonic looking hand on like a red uh looks like a fender stratocaster like something like eric clapton would play uh produced had a higher budget than fasano's previous works such as zombie nightmare that makes perfect sense because it's relatively similar to that as well as rock and roll nightmare i've seen zombie nightmare it's pretty corny uh i haven't actually uh no i watched uh i think it's just called drive-in and at the drive-in they uh talk about zombie nightmare so clearly uh, john fasano must have been uh in part with that and they uh, are watching the film rock and roll nightmare at the drive them while they're watching it so a bunch of you know breaking the fourth wall and so forth so that makes sense now uh clearly it's stating that yes he directed it so once again that makes sense fasano said that after rock and roll nightmare he stated that was shot for about fifty two thousand dollars it made like four hundred thousand dollars in sales shapiro glickenhaus approached him and offered him 400k to make black roses so there is a little bit of a uh incongruent aspect here because imdb stated 450k so 50k is missing let me see if i can figure this out however during the uh, promotion of this film fasano stated that the film's budget was slightly under 1 uh, million american dollars the film was shot in canada as distributors would get better tax deals when the film was shot there okay makes perfect sense cheaper uh, fasano later stated the film was shot in hamilton uh under the recommendation of paul michnik as he thought it resembled an american industrial town according to fasano the owners of the house in toronto used for black roses was in the middle of divorce that's sad uh when arriving for the last day of shooting at the house the crew found all the doors had been locked and lights turned out special effects artists hired for the film were richard platt and michael maddie after veteran makeup artist uh, dick smith recommended them the special effects team felt they were pressured by the eight-week shooting schedule that they had for the film <clears throat> the opening scene with the demon band took three weeks to complete uh, so they had five weeks left to do what they could. Wow. With Platt stating that the team were putting in 16 to 20 hour days. Well, that's what you had to do back then, man. I prefer that over CGI all day. Released. Article in Fangoria originally uh, had a scheduled release date for Black Roses as a theatrical release in autumn of 1988. The film was released on home video that December. Released on DVD by Synapse Films in 2007. Receptively, contemporary reviews... Variety commented that the interesting makeup effects are the film's highlight. Agreed. Yeah, that's probably the best aspect to it, really. Concluded that there are some sexy scenes, but Creature from the Black Lagoon alumna Julie Adams had little to do here. Okay, ha ha, I get that. All right. Uh, that's all I got on uh, Black Roses. There's nothing else, just references and so forth. So, all right, well, there's your uh, three horror films. I will get into uh, something else here. Alright guys, I watched uh, two OVAs, of course I did. I've just been on like an OVA kick lately because it's just stuff I feel like I missed and it's just that golden era of anime and it's just phenomenal. Uh, that being said, I watched uh, Kite. It is a TV miniseries from 1998. The follow-up came out in 2008, uh, 10 years later, known as Kite Liberator. I will get into that right after I uh, am done talking about uh, this. Um, has a 6.6 .6 out of 5,000 reviews. I'm surprised it doesn't have like a 7 or an 8 because Kite kind of plays out like V for Vendetta meets like Leon the Professional. It's it's literally like just how I viewed it. I was like, that's totally like a Natalie Portman character just kicking ass and it's fucking cool. Um, it's an action crime, I guess, drama, if you will. It's about a young girl orphaned at an early age carrying out assassinations at the behest of her mentor in the first one. The second one plays out a little differently but it's similar but it has a little bit of like sci-fi elements as well the first one is very much so just i don't know just dark and gritty and just 
just overly violent and just creepy kind of like sex sequences you know because they're like minors and underage and you know you see them change or you know you see uh i don't know just assailants like come up and touch them it's just crazy that you know japan was able to just come up with something like this at that time and it still stands the test of time and it's just it's incredible it's I would highly recommend it. I don't recognize any of the uh, voice actors. Um, apparently, there's a uh, you know dub version. I like I always tell you guys. I always try and watch them. Um, the uh, subbed version, which I feel like is usually the most profoundly effective way of watching this, the way that the story is supposed to be portrayed. Because when you watch it in English, sometimes words are changed. It doesn't have the same meaning. Sure, it might not be necessarily sometimes the best <clears throat> English translation, but you make do with what you got. Let me get some water. What do I have here? Uh, as far as uh, English actors, I don't recognize anybody. Like I said, I watched it in Japanese. Um, it's on par with uh, Violent Jack in regards to just kind of like a post-apocalyptic feel and just the violence and uh, just sexual drive of the uh, characters and so forth. It's just interesting. Uh, the storyline here, I have a little bit more. Uh, she may be cute, she may be young, she may seem innocent naive, but don't be fooled. She's a cold-blooded killer, and if you're on the wrong side of law, you might be her next target. <clears throat> After being orphaned at a young age, her parents' victims of a brutal double murder, Sawa was taken into the detective assigned uh, to her case, not content to just watch as an imperfect justice system let more and more criminals go loose every day. He's decided to train her to be his instrument of justice. After all, who'd suspect a pretty college student of being deadly vigilante? Yep. Agreed. Yep, I like it. The tagline here is pretty cool, too. Dangerous things come in small packages, and that works. To me, I feel like that works for any type of, like, assassin-type film that stars probably a female. All right, let's take a look at uh, trivia here. I'm sure it's going to be interesting because this was this was a great, great uh, OVA. Uh, both were. I think I'm more partial to the first one. I, I enjoyed, I think, the story more. The second one is still good, though, as well. Uh, Kite 2 uh, Liberator. Three versions were released in the USA by Media Blasters. A general release version released in 2000 and a director's cut released in 2002. Uh, released by their adult label, Kitty Media, which contains nearly 10 minutes of explicit footage. I'm not surprised. This director's cut version, however, is missing 12 seconds worth of footage found in the original Japanese release, which is what I watched. A third release labeled Uncut Special Edition, released in 2004, also released by Media Blasters adult label, Kitty Media, containing Kite in its original uncut form. The sex scenes in Kite were a result of the director's contractual obligation to the production companies who provided the funding. Wow. So his you know, supervisors were like, ah, keep it in. And I get he was probably like, okay. Uh, Sawa makes a one-second cameo in Mezzo Forte, uh, which also has you know similar writers and so forth, which is another uh, OVA anime, so I might have to watch that one as well. Kite was banned in China, Norway, and Sweden for its graphic content. And I, yeah, I get that. The version released in Germany by the OVA is the uncut version. That's pretty cool as well. All right, moving on. Let me see what else we got here. I this I've been watching a lot of OVAs lately, and this this one was cool. I could definitely gravitate towards just the idea and the story behind everything. This this one is highly recommended. I mean, all the ones I've watched, I would recommend, but there was just something about this one that just really captivated me. Uh, released March seventh, two thousand, even though it was filmed obviously in eighty eight also known as I Kato, A uh, space K-I-T-O, or maybe A Kato, anyway. Produced by Arms, Beam Entertainment, and Green Bunny. 
and I have nothing on a budget here. Let's see what uh, Wikipedia has to say about this. Kite, also known as a kite uh, in Japan, Japanese OVA, written and directed by Yasumua Oometsu. Uh, I believe he also did uh, some soundtracks to uh, some like Squaresoft games, like via Super Nintendo and um, PS1, as well as, um, I wanna say he did some songs for the new Sea of Stars, which I'm obviously still playing and I'm having a fun time with. Um, Two 35-minute episodes released on VHS February 25th and October 25th of 1998, respectively. However, subsequent releases, including all three DVD releases in the U.S., have edited the OVA into the film. <clears throat> Release history released VHS in Japan February 25th, 1998, October 25th, also as I've stated. Um, Kite was released in DVD in Australia September 21st, 2005, and New Zealand. Same year, September 11, 2005, by Mad Men Entertainment. Due to Norway's strict child pornography laws, I understand, uh, Kite has been banned due to graphic scenes of sexual assault on a minor. And, right, it, it's not designed to obviously stimulate you and release, uh, like, dopamine and, you know, epinephrine and so forth and get you excited. It's just to uh, build that story. And she's not, like, you know, eight years old or anything. She, sure, she's probably, like, 16 or 17 and I can understand their meaning behind it. Obviously, I don't know if anybody in Norway listens to my show. I'm just saying it's it's just part of the story. But I, I can see why it's upsetting. And it was pretty jarring to watch that. And I get that. Uh, the sequel entitled Kite Liberator, the one that came out in 2008, features a different cast of characters, including a new character named Manaka Noguchi. You're led to believe that that's like the same um, character as Sawa, but... Uh, she looks similar, does kind of the same antics, the way that she uh, talks and performs her assassins and her assassinations and so forth. It's it, it's similar, but like I said, it has a sci-fi feel to it. It's a little different. Um, released April 8, 2008, uh, Liberator, the uh, sequel, in the U.S. and Japan, bundled with Kite Director's Cut, along with Kite, released December 2013 on Netflix. Wow, I had Netflix at that time. But then, I mean, I watched anime then too. I just, I don't think I'm as well endowed with the knowledge that I have now uh, compared to then there's a live action film adaptation I did not know that a 2014 film <clears throat> reported to be in various stages of pre-production for several years wow with American film director Rob Cohen oh Cohen brother okay attached as either director or producer content of the live action film is expected to be toned down from the original OVA I get that different different era different time different everything I get that uh, on September 2nd of 2011, David R. Ellis took the helm for the remake. December, or yes, uh, a week later, December 17th, 2012, or well, a year and a week, how about that? <laughs> December 17th, 2012, Samuel Jackson announced that he was the first to join the cast of this film, with filming taking place in Johannesburg, <clears throat> the film which takes place in a post-financial collapse uh, corrupt society, following a girl who tries to track down her father's killer with the help of an uh, ex-partner. On February 3rd, 2013, Ralph Zimmon took over as director uh, Ellis died. Wow. January 7, 2013. Rest in peace. Actors uh, India Isley and Kalan McAuliffe subsequently joined the cast. On May of 2013, the Weinstein Company acquired worldwide distribution rights for Kite with a release date of August 25th, 2014. Now I feel like that's something I gotta uh, research and uh, maybe watch it and talk to you guys about it. That's crazy. <clears throat> Receptively. Kite is controversial in its depiction of extreme gory violence and sexual content. Yes, I... I, I completely agree and I understand uh, including graphic rape scenes involving a young uh, Sawa in the first one which was depicted only in the extended version Helen McCarthy in 500 essential anime movies called the anime a shocking story of violence, abuse, and perverted self-justification 
And like I said, I think it was designed to be shocking and jarring and that <clears throat> self-justification, you know, it's up to the eye of the beholder. It was supposed to uh, give you that sense. Uh, Kill Bill writer and director, of course, Quentin Tarantino, recommended Kite as part of actress Chaiki Kuriyama's preparations for her role as Gogo Yubari in the first film. I did not know that. Several scenes in the music video directed by Hype Williams for the song Ex-Girlfriend by No Doubt are based on Kite. I'm going to have to check that out, too. Wow. The Velvet Acid Christ, a band, apparently. Song Pretty Toy samples one of Akai's lines from the English dub. Wow. Okay. Uh, let me take a look at Kite Liberator here, on uh, which is the sequel film on uh, Wikipedia. <clears throat> Let's take a look at Reception. Uometsu's work has been a favorite of mine since I saw his designs in Megazone 23, part 2 OVA of all those years ago. Uh, excuse me. As well as numerous things since then. Hopefully it will be another 10 years before he can be pulled back to the franchise so he can focus on more interesting projects. Chris Beveridge of Mania. Straightforward nature of many scenes doesn't quite maintain the goals of the piece as a whole. Agreed. It, it does have weird, like, loose plot points. Uh, you know, she finds out that... Uh, pretty much literally at the end that her dad is this like because her dad's an astronaut he goes out of space and essentially the food that they're feeding him he like transforms into this exoskeleton alien looking thing not necessarily like a xenomorph alien but yeah it's like this weird skeleton demon thing and she finds out that it's him and that's one of her things to kill at the end she realizes oh wow like that's my dad he's been in outer space and something happened to him i killed him and then she ends up killing the people who told her that yes that's your dad and yeah it's 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 a gruesome film man it's it's nuts uh the straightforward nature of many scenes doesn't quite maintain the goal as a piece of a whole but taken as a general self-reflective tarantino style satire and it works uh i don't know if it's a tarantino feel but i guess i'll accept that anime news network uh stated that all right that's what i got on kite let's move on to ninja scroll ninja scroll is like a full length hour and a half 1993 uh, ova it's fucking dope uh i don't know why i slept on this one i've never heard of it until recently that's probably why uh just like i said been going back and discovering these has a 7.8 out of uh borderline 40,000 reviews and it well deserved it's the action in it the story the way that the uh you know ninjas or samurai fight it's just the swordsmen the the clan of killers the way that it plays out it's just it's a beautiful fucking masterpiece of just cartoon mastery uh it's about a vagabond swordsman who is uh, swordsman i said swordsman what the hell's a swordsman whatever i'm a has-been fuck it whatever <laughs> aided by uh kunochi and a spy in a battling demonic clan of killers led by a ghost from his past who are bent on overthrowing the takagua shogunate yeah take take that into consideration sure whatever <laughs> Um, I am also watching the uh, dubbed version, of, or excuse me, I did watch the uh, dubbed version of this, and it was, it's great. I, I like it. I had a lot of fun with it. The music is great. The way that it pans out, it's just, it, it's phenomenal. Apparently, there's also a Ninja Scroll series. Uh, I will have to look that up. It doesn't have the same score. It's a 6.8. Actually, is it, what was this? This was a 7.8. Okay, I knew there was an 8 in there, so clearly the film is better than the TV series, but I will... Be on the lookout for that. Uh, more like this, Vampire Hunter D. That is one of those classics that I have heard of, talked about in discussion before, have yet to watch it, the uh, series as well as the uh, OVA. And then also in consideration, they're talking about Wicked City uh, here. Wicked City is the one that I watched uh, out to see, and that one really just really sent me into like, dude, there's stuff like this. It's just so bizarre and out there. Like, I got to check this out. So I've just been on a, a kick ever since uh, I started watching Wicked City over a... Uh, 
year ago. Maybe I'll talk about that uh, in episode 100. That one, that one's a fucking weird, weird anime film. Uh, tagline here: The Legend of Jubei, the Shogun of the Dark, and the Eight Devils of Kimon. Hey, yeah, I mean, it, it gives you an idea. It's a little long for my taste, but it, it's it works in a sense, sure. Of course, uh, what do I have here? Trivially, not as successful or well-received in Japan as it was in the U.S. I'm not surprised. It was created there. And, uh, you know, at the time, in the early 90s, like I've stated before, anime wasn't really that prevalent until maybe 98, 99. It started to get a little bit of notoriety. People would talk about it. And then, you know, you reach uh, early millennium and then Toonami was all over anime. And it's been relatively growing and progressing in our society ever since, in my opinion. Uh, the concept of Ninja Scroll arose from the director's fascination with ninjas and the idea of them always tricking, or yes, always to trick each other. And yeah, yeah. The film is a tribute to the works of Japanese author Futaro Yamada, who throughout the 60s wrote many historical novels about ninjas. That's cool. Director James McTeague cited the film as one of the influences behind his film Ninja Assassin that came out in 2009. And that comes full circle and makes a lot of sense now. <clears throat> Kagiro wears the exact same purple headdress costume that Meiko Kaji wore in the film Lady Snowblood, 1973. That's a really cool... Uh, there's two of those films, Lady Snowblood, and then it's like... I can't remember. It might be like Return of Lady Snowblood or just Lady Snowblood uh, 2. Those are really, really uh, interesting uh, martial arts films that uh, definitely have a cult following, but I still don't feel like get discussed enough in terms of uh, quality. All right, let's see what else IMDb has to state here in regards to a Ninja Scroll. All right, come on. Here we go. Released June 5th, 1993. Also known as Jubei Nimpocho, The Wind Ninja Chronicles. Okay, cool. Produced by Victor Company of Japan, JVC. I feel stupid. I had no idea that... Of course, JVC was probably... It's probably always been... Uh, a acronym abbreviated I just I had no idea also released by Toho company and Muvik Toho being the uh, obviously owners of uh, Godzilla box office it grossed worldwide a thousand dollars a thousand seventy three I don't know what it cost to make let's see if I can find that information on uh, Wikipedia and I will close out this uh, segment here <clears throat> also known as uh, Hepburn Jubei Nipocho uh, Jubei's Ninja Chronicles um film takes place in a feudal Japan following Kibigami Jubei, a mercenary swordsman who battles the eight devils of Kimon, team of ninjas with supernatural powers who are intent on overthrowing the Takagua Shogunate. During his quest, he's aided by Dakuan, uh, Dakuan <coughs> excuse me, an elderly but crafty government spy, and Kagero, a Koga Konochi, whose body is infused with poisonous toxins. Praise for its animation and action sequences. Yes, that's... <coughs> that's... Yes, I agree with that. Uh, sorry, I had to get some water. Man, my throat. Regarded by many as one of the most influential anime films ever made. Yes, I, I agree. It should be in talks with, you know, Akira and so forth. I, I well, the next line here, I didn't even realize it says alongside Akira and Ghost in the Shell. Those were the two that I were going to say as well. That just probably skyrocketed the idea that you know they can advertise it and uh, market it over here as well to the u.s uh, it was responsible for increasing the popularity of adult-oriented anime outside of japan been cited by the wakowski brothers as an influence on the matrix franchise that also makes a lot of fucking sense that is awesome resulted as kawajiri's later contributing uh two segments of the anthology anthology the animatrix once again makes perfect sense 
a televised standalone sequel, Ninja Scroll the series, was aired in Japan in 2003. I'm going to have to track that one down and check that out. <clears throat> I don't want to read the plot. I don't want to give any of it away because that's just... It's something you guys got to watch and experience. The story and style was influenced by the works of novelist Futuyaro Yamada, as I've mentioned before, a Western spy fiction uh, era of the time. The film was originally meant to consist of two films, being 45 minutes each. The storyboard was written this way, which is why there are climax scenes in the first and second half of the film. Okay. Licensed by Manga Entertainment in Australia and North America until 2012, while its UK subsidiary kept the license and released the film on a Blu-ray steelbook in October of 2012. Um... In 2000, when Manga and Madman Entertainment released the film on DVD, Madman mistakenly used the UK cut of the film instead of the, using the uncut Australian version. Rectified 2004, releasing a 10th anniversary special edition of the film in Western countries, and both Australia and UK received Ninja Scroll uncut remastered from a PAL VHS source. Oh, man, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I feel like those are the... Well, it's obviously just subjective, and it's a matter of perspective here, but I feel like... It's hard to find VHS that is anime and horror, uh, which I enjoy both, and they're both just incredibly, just outrageously expensive sometimes. Sometimes you find some gold for cheap. I, I saw April Fool's Day 1986 this last Sunday on VHS. Maybe it was like 20, 30 bucks, and I was like, okay, that's not bad, but I was like, I don't need it. I already have a DVD uh, dual box set with uh, My Bloody Valentine, um, also the same year, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe earlier, it might have been like 83. Uh, in Canada, the film was given an 18A rating while it released unrated in the U.S. The film's uh, release in Blu-ray in Japan, uh, May 23rd, 2012. Receptively, won the Citizens Award in 93 on review aggregator Rotten Tomatoes. It has an 89%, rightly so, based on 18 reviews with an average rating of 7.4 out of 10. During the 90s, Ninja Scroll was among the most popular anime movies outside of Japan alongside Akira and Ghost in the Shell, as I mentioned. North American video release of Ninja Scroll had sold more than 70,000 copies by May of 96, becoming Manga Entertainment's best-selling title of all time. That's cool. Oh, excuse me, title at that time, not of all time. In February 2004, uh, Cinefantastic listed anime as one of the essential, essential animations you have to watch. Agreed. Yeah, I, I, I can't even, like, fathom. It was fantastic. <clears throat> the action scenes sizzle with energy and powerful maneuvers unencumbered by tiresome dramatics and further stated that the plot mostly exists just to set up conflicts between the protagonist and the devils of Kimon. Allow various characters to show off their colorful ninja techniques, concluded that Ninja Scrolls' story is too thin for its ever legitimately be considered one of the all-time great anime movies, but considered to be a classic, stating that the dubbed English version, which he stated, has slightly more attitude and some distinctive vocal stylizing, uh, stylizing excuse me, mixed in with occasional awkward uh, emphasis. Very faithful script-wise to the original uh, Japanese version that still holds its own in 2012. In 2012, Robbie Collin of The Telegraph ranked it three of five stars, explaining that its Baroque sadism and sexism hasn't aged well, but it still packs a visceral kick. And, and I can see that. You have to... You have to remember, this came out in 93, 30 years ago. It was a different time for everything, different technology, different perspectives on things, and times change, sir. It might maybe upset some people, but you have to remember that's what was popular, and that's what they had at the time in this golden era of anime, in my opinion. Uh, there was a sequel in 2008. Madhouse uh, announced that the official sequel was in the works, returning to write and direct. In July 2012, the studio released a teaser trailer for a three-episode short anime. February 2014, Madhouse CEO confirmed that uh, Kawajiri had a finished script for the film, tentatively titled Ninja Scroll Kocho. 
The production would move ahead as soon as uh, financing had been secured. Divulged that the studio was experiencing difficulty finding investors due to the fact that the original film was not a big hit in Japan. As of 2019, the project remains in limbo. Wow, four years and nothing. I'd be interested, but obviously I'm just one person. <laughs> In North America, the Ninja Resurrection original video anime was marketed as a sequel to Ninja Scroll, but was actually based on an unrelated story and created by a different animation studio. Only similarity is the lead's character was given the name Jubei. Pseh. Wow. Live action adaptation here and then closing out. In October 2008, it was reported by Warner Brothers acquire the rights to develop a live action adaptation of Ninja Scroll with Leonardo DiCaprio's APM Way Productions. That's, I didn't know he was an anime fan. That's cool. I'm assuming he is, otherwise he wouldn't have been on board with it. Uh, Madhouse and Japanese producer Jungo Maruta, also involved in the project. Screenwriter Alex Say, who co-wrote the 2009 film The Watchmen. That was a fantastic movie and a fantastic graphic novel. Hired to write the screenplay in April 2009, reported that DiCaprio would act as producer and was considered casting the Japanese boy band SMAP in the lead roles. Interesting. In October 2015, Dracula Untold director Gary Shore revealed that he had once been attached to the film to direct, releasing a proof-of-concept trailer he had produced with a motion capture by 8711 and animation by Third Floor. As of 2018, the production remains development hell. Wow. I'm sorry, DiCaprio. Man, that sucks, because I would be interested in what you were able to achieve with this, because it was a phenomenal anime. Um, that's it. I talked about three uh, horror films, and I talked about these two anime, and... Uh, Let's see if I can get into something else. All right, a little uh, cornea ensemble uh, closing out <clears throat> here with a band. I'm going to be talking to Goldfinger, a classic, uh, I guess, rock, ska, skate, punk band from the uh, 90s. And uh, I thought about talking about it because I was like, man, I, I love their uh, version of 99 Red Balloons. And yes, this is episode 99. And uh, I mean, I think I first heard him probably because of uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, you know, with uh, Superman, and it's classic, man. I love it. I've seen him probably like twice, and uh, I remember, uh, um, oh my God, what's his name? Mark Carrera from uh, MXPX, the bassist, he uh, has played in uh, the band, or excuse me, Mike Carrera, excuse me, I, I should know, I have a fucking MXPX tattoo. He's performed with Goldfinger on bass and, you know, played with them and so forth. And obviously MXPX uh, still plays shows. They're coming out in January. I would love to get tickets for that and go see them. But uh, that being said, I'm going to be talking about uh, Goldfinger. American punk rock uh, ska band from Los Angeles, California, formed in 94. <clears throat> in the early years, the band was considered a contributor to the movement of the third wave of ska. I agree. I mean, there was that time. I mean, there was, uh, what, Less Than Jake, Real Big Fish, uh, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, you know, like it just it blew up again ever since obviously the 80s with like the toasters and the specials and so forth and even songs by uh, no doubt even songs by a uh, sublime that being said at mid 1990s revitalization because i can't fucking speak english and the popularity of scott however the releases of open your eyes and disconnection uh, notice saw the bands shed mostly of a ska influence they have been more commonly placed in the punk rock genre in later years <clears throat> yeah i i could see that I, i've had a couple of their albums uh, like hangups and uh, obviously the um, what is it, the fucking like compilation like greatest hits series I definitely had that too. Uh, Goldfinger was formed by former Electric Love Hogs member John Feldman on vocals and guitar, Simon Williams on bass, former drum uh, enthusiast of Zero Tolerance Darren Pfeiffer on, uh, and as well as Charles uh, Paulson on guitar. At the time the band was formed, Feldman and Williams were working at the same shoe store where they discovered A&R executive Patrick McDowell. Before they were signed to a major label, they released an EP titled Richter on the independent label Mojo Records. 
which received favorable reviews and a substantial amount of airplay on college radio, leading to Goldfinger and Mojo signing a major local uh, contract at the time with Universal Records. Yeah, more power to him, man. Many of the songs on Richter are demo versions of the song's band full-length debut album, self-titled, produced by Jay Rifkin and released uh, by Mojo on uh, February 29th, a uh, leap year in 1996. The songs I Hear in Your Bedroom from the album was especially popular, helped the band gain a solid fan base to the uh, and in 2006, Alternative Press listed the self-titled Goldfinger album as one of the 10 albums that shaped 96. Yeah, I agree. Alongside, no doubt, in, uh, Weezer. At that time, Weezer, it was probably, might have been maybe like the Blue Album or maybe like Pinkerton or something that was around that time. The band released its second album, Hang Ups, September 9th, 1997. Founded by bassist Simon Williams, left the band uh, following Hang Ups. During this time, Goldfinger released a popular cover of the song More Today Than Yesterday by Spiral Staircase, which helped the band uh, stay out of obscurity. That was the early years, 94 to 98. Uh, 99-2003, Goldfinger released Darren's Coconut Ass, Live from Omaha. Sweet title. Like it. <laughs> the album sold poorly in the U.S. It was a modest hit in European countries, uh, thanks to Nina's cover of 99 Luft Balloons. It's, it's a heavier version. I, I really like it. Sung partly in German. As it should be, I, I get it. It was a German song. <clears throat> in 2000, during their tour of England, Goldfinger recorded one of their sets, issuing the live foot in the mouth, available only at shows through the band's official website. In 2001, Goldfinger announced that Charlie Paulson was leaving the band, replaced by former uh, Unaloco member uh, Brian Arthur. Next album, Open Your Eyes, 2002, was their first new record label of uh, Jive Zomba. A subject which had not been touched upon in earlier albums, with their ska influences, the band recorded a music video with a track album, that was focused on animal rights. Interesting. <clears throat> Disconnection noticed the uh, album era of 2004-2006. Early 2005, they released their first album on their new label, label uh, forming another label, Maverick Records, uh, titled Disconnection Notice. The CD was less well-received compared to former Goldfinger members. 2005, Brian departed from the band after release of the album. Hello Destiny, 2007-2010 era. Goldfinger signed to the independent record label Side One Dummy. I know Seguin Dummy Records, not like on a personal level, but I know the uh, label. Uh, to promote their album, Hello Destiny, the band embarked on a successful North American tour with Less Than Jake. Rightly so, Less Than Jake kicked ass. I saw that they performed at Mad Platter. Mad Platter, uh, rest in peace, man. Mad Platter in uh, Riverside over by UC Riverside, right off the uh, um, 15 there in like the 91. They used to have um, like free concerts out there sometimes. Uh, Less Than Jake performed there in the 90s. It was pretty cool. Um, they had... Uh, they had a bunch of records and like movies and like toys and memorabilia and unfortunately covid saw their demise and they are no longer around anymore rest in peace mad platter i still remember the guys who worked there too patrick and chris man they were they were cool people i could talk horror films and music with those guys all day that being said recently frontman john feldman had produced records for mess the used uh sang some guest vocals on open your eyes woodchuck ocean size and hand jobs for jesus uh, lovely lovely title huh hillary duff and story of the year <clears throat> also produced Good Charlotte's single, The Anthem, everybody knows that one, by uh, Benji Madden, providing guest vocals on January for their song um, on the Goldfinger album. Originally named Oracle of El Caro, also signed the band uh, Uno Loco, or excuse me, Unloco, not Uno Loco, excuse me, uh, with Maverick Records. November 2010, Goldfinger played a handful of shows on the small west coast with Real Big Fish. Hell yeah. Seen them countless times. They're probably easily one of my top ten bands to see live. They just do such a great job. Uh, these are the first shows that performed without Darren Pfeiffer on drums. Drumming duties were handed uh, down to Brandon uh, Steinekert of Rancid. That's pretty damn cool. Also on the L.A. scene uh, show, House of the Blues, original bassist Simon Williams came out to perform several songs of the first album. 
First time Williams had performed with the band in over a decade. He played the Las Vegas show as well. Knife, 2010 to 2020. November 2010, issue number 43 of Smash Magazine. Feldman stated that a new EP or possible full-length album was in the works. <clears throat> Goldfinger was expecting to have their new album out sometime in 2012. The band released a new song, Am I Deaf, on Friday, May 24th, 2013. As of 2017, the group released The Knife, the band's feature, uh, excuse me, first album featuring Mike Carrera from MXPX, Travis Barker from fucking Blink-182, and Philip Sneed, Moon uh, Valjean, Darren Kelly, and Charlie left the band prior to its release. Wow. Darren Pfeiffer left the band due to personality conflicts with Feldman. Yeah, I get it. Bands fight, but sometimes you gotta stay together for, you know, the fans, just like, you know, the Blink-22 song, stay together for the kids. No pun intended, considering Travis Barker was on this album. That being said, Charlie Paulson did rejoin the band on stage 2019, back to the beach festival at Vans Warped Tour. Rest in peace, no longer around. I went three years in a row, had a great fucking time. Paulson has since rejoined the band and has played with them all their recent shows as well as Herrera and Sneed have been in the band since with Barker occasionally playing live shows and other friends of uh, Feldman playing drums that's cool that he's still like his friends with them he's like yeah yeah I'm sure I'll, I'll do a, I'll do a gig with you guys why not that's that's cool <clears throat> other musicians fill on guitar and bass when Paulson and Sneed Herrera are not present at the shows I was fortunate enough to see uh, Herrera each time and I think I've seen them twice as I've stated the live shows often feature horn players from numerous other ska bands, including Ruben Durazo, Matt Appleton, Billy Cottage, and numerous others. During 2020 corona, uh, COVID pandemic, YouTube designated quarantine videos. Yeah, a lot of bands did that. They did a rendition of Here in Your Bedroom. To date, the band have released eight quarantine videos for songs, including their covers of 99 Luft Balloons, Superman. Notably, seven of the eight videos' performances feature musicians and entrepreneur Nick Gross on drums. Never Look Back, uh, 2022 present. December 4th, 2020, marked the release of Never Look Back with members John Feldman, Charlie Paulson, Mike Carrera, Philip Sneed, and Nick Gross. First album since 2008's Hello Destiny. Wow, 12 years hiatus. That's nuts. December 10th, 2020, the band held an online release party in support of the album where they uh, did a live stream entire set due to the COVID pandemic and an in-person event was not feasible. Understandable. I get it. The band started playing shows in late 2022 and early 2023. Planet Smashers and Mustard Plug, as well as Catch-22. Catch-22 and Streetlight Manifesto, essentially the same band. They were also big in the 90s, and I would love to go see them live, man. They're, their fucking shit is awesome. July 29, 2022, the band announced the deluxe version Never Look Back, featuring uh, recorded tracks Here in Your Bedroom with Avril Lavigne. Okay, whatever. Superman with uh, Biffy Clyro. Never heard of the individual. And 99 Red Balloons. Four new bonus tracks released August 5th. Uh, yeah, as I've stated, they, uh, the band's uh, video game uh, debut was Tony Hawk's Pro Skater with the song Superman, which was reused as a part of the soundtracks for Tony Hawk's Pro Skater HD, as well as Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2. Another song, Spokesman, was used in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4. I've played all the Tony Hawk's. I guess I don't remember that song. Uh, I'm Down was featured in the game MTV Sports, Skateboarding. I'm sure it's fucking terrible. And Zandy McDonald. He was, he was cool. He was a big, uh, I think, uh, Airwalk uh, supporter, if I'm not mistaken. Airwalk is still around. Sometimes you can still find them, those skate shoes. Um, 99 Red Balloons is featured in Gran Turismo 3. Cool. I've definitely played a little bit of it. I'm not the biggest racing sim fan, but Goldfinger's song, I Want, from Disconnection Notice, is featured in Burnout Revenge. I have that one. I, I love Burnout. So much fucking fun. And Burnout 3. Anyway, on PS2, Xbox, and 360, also featured Burnout Legends was the uh, PSP. My Everything is featured on SSX on Tour. I have that game. I guess I never noticed that. Goldfinger also appeared on Real Big Fish's video, Sellout. That's from a Turn the Radio Off uh, album. 
uh, they were in it for a couple of seconds. That's cool. That That's OG uh, Real Big Fish, too. That's like 96, 97. Uh, the song Counting the Days is featured on Sean White snowboarding the game. Never played it. The song Superman was released as a downloadable content in the music video game Rock Band 4. That's cool. That You know, they... They've had a lot of members come and go. They still play shows. I've seen them. They've kind of had a rocky history, but that's cool that they're still going, man. Yeah, it's like I said, I had to mention it because of 99 Luff Balloons. And yes, this is my 99th episode. All right. That being said, I talked Nightmare Beach, Near Dark, Black Roses, Kite 1 and 2, Ninja Scroll, and Goldfinger. I haven't talked music in a little minute. And I don't really feel like Goldfinger gets enough credit. And obviously, it had a pun for me since it was my 99th episode. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was fun to do this little episode. It's been fun doing these shows so far. I can't believe I'm coming up on 100 episodes. I hope to have a guest, uh, maybe two guests, whatever, on that one and figure out what I'm going to discuss, and uh, we'll go from there. As always, thank you for the love and support, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your day, night, wherever you are. Uh, I love my listeners, man. I'm, I'm having fun doing this, so thank you. Good night. Good day, wherever you are. Well, sure, I'm in England. Good day. <laughs> whatever. You guys get it. See you later.